John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who, he was, who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. During my freshman year of college, I used to jam to a top 40 hit that came out by Hathaway called What is Love? Now, the ones that are chuckling are probably within my age range, and you're probably humming it in your head right now, some of you have no clue. So let me read you the lyrics, or at least some of the lyrics of this song that I used to jam to my freshman year of college. And I'm gonna try not to sing it, but it's hard, because it's quite a jingle. All right, listen. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. I don't know why you're not fair. I give you my love, but you don't care. So what is right and what is wrong? Give me a sign. Oh, I don't know. What can I do? What else can I say? It's up to you. I know we're one, just me and you. I can't go on. I want no other, no other lover. This is our life, our time. We are together. I need you forever. Is it love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Now we chuckle, but the title of that song, What is Love, is an incredibly relevant 
question for our day and for our culture. It's a question that you need to answer before you jump into a dating relationship. It's a question that you need to answer for your marriage. And it's a question if you have children that you need to answer for them in the midst of this world and this culture. What is love? And we're going to answer it by exploring three, three points or three areas, the foundation of love, the essence of love, and finally, the expression of love. First, the foundation of love. This passage, first and foremost, is not a passage that is telling you how to go love one another. It is that, and we're going to get to that. But first and foremost, this is a passage describing what Jesus does for his disciples, what he's about to do for his disciples, and by extension, what he's done for us. Now, how do we know that? There's a couple of clues in the passage. First, verse 1. It says, now before the feast of the Passover. This was annual Passover feast where everyone was converging on Jerusalem. Jesus was enjoying his last Passover meal with his disciples. And the other gospels tell us that he sent a few of his disciples on into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover meal for them. That involved locating a place to eat it, which was the, ended up being this upper room but also sacrificing a lamb, gathering all that was needed for this meal. The Passover was a, was a celebration of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. It was a celebration of how they were spared judgment by sacrificing a lamb and putting the blood on the doorposts. It was a celebration of God's salvation. And so they're joined together for this Passover meal. But this one takes on a little bit of a different flavor for Jesus and for his disciples because he is less than 24 hours away from being crucified on the cross. This is Thursday night. He's gonna get crucified the next day. And he's gonna get crucified as the Passover lamb. And that's why the other gospels indicate that Jesus at this meal institutes the Lord's Supper. So he holds up the bread to his disciples and he says, this is my body that will be broken for you. And he holds up the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood that will be poured out for you in less than 24 hours. That this is a meal that it's about God's salvation. So what we learn here is that first and foremost, this foot washing is not primarily about what you're supposed to do to others. It is, and we're gonna get to that. But first and foremost, this foot washing is symbolic of the cleansing that Jesus is going to bring on the cross less than 24 hours later through his death and his resurrection. And that symbolic washing that this foot washing represents is picked up in Jesus' conversation with Peter. Right? Verse 6, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're not going to understand it right now, but you will. And what's Peter say? You should never wash my feet. Never. And then Jesus' reply is, listen, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You don't belong to me. You have no inheritance with me. And so then Peter, just, you've got to love Peter. Peter's like, well, I want to be with you, Jesus, so wash everything. 
head, hands, body, feet, whatever it takes to be with you. And then Jesus says in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus is referring to the spiritual cleansing, the forgiveness of sin that happens on the cross through his death death, and then through his resurrection. The problem is that Peter doesn't quite understand his sin. (laughs) He doesn't understand the depth of his sin. That's why initially he said, Jesus, don't wash my feet. Now, you know, Peter's, there's some confusion going on here because Jesus is Messiah, he's King, he's Lord. And Peter can't square that with Jesus doing something that a slave was supposed to do. He's not squaring it, but at the heart of it, you have Peter who does not understand the depth and the filth of his sin. That's why he says, don't wash me. And then if we see by the end of chapter 13, you see Peter saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'm gonna die with you. And Jesus says, Peter, (laughs) you're gonna deny me three times. Peter's not aware. He's not aware of the depth of his sin. He's not aware of what he's capable of. He's not aware of the washing that he needs, that Jesus is symbolically gonna bring through the foot washing pointing to the cross. Now, what does this have to do with the foundation of Jesus' love? Everything. Because the more that you understand the depth of your sin, the more that you understand the, the filth of your sin, the greater Jesus' love is to you. Depth of sin and the understanding of it leads to a greater understanding of therefore what Jesus had to do to cleanse that sin for you on the cross. In fact, in Luke chapter seven, when the prostitute comes and anoints Jesus' feet, that scandalous event, how does Jesus conclude that whole event? He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. Right, in other words, he who's forgiven little, if if you don't understand the depth of your sin and therefore don't understand how much you need to be forgiven, then the the consequence of that is your inability to love. And the step before being forgiven, if you don't understand the depth of your sin, then Jesus' love on the cross is a, it's an abstract concept. It's a theory. It's merely intellectual understanding without understanding and gripping at a heart level the depth of your sin that required such an, an awful but beautiful sacrifice. So without understanding the depth of sin, we don't understand the love of Jesus. And the love of Jesus becomes abstract, abstract concept. John, who authors this gospel, also authors three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he says in 1st John chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. This is the foundation of love. There's no talking about love unless you talk about this foundation. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Propitiation, it's that word that means a wrath-removing sacrifice. It means that the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the righteous, holy punishment of God poured out on sin was poured out on Jesus instead of you. And so if you understand the depth of your sin, you therefore understand what Jesus had to do 
That's when love becomes more than an abstract concept or an intellectual understanding. And what we find is if Jesus' love is abstract to you, then your ability to love others is abstract. So at the core of this passage is the foundation of love, of Jesus' love for us. Now, the question is, what is that love? What's the nature of it? What's the essence of it? that Jesus displays on the cross, but then what he calls us, we're gonna see later, display to others. What is the nature of love? What's the essence of it? And there's two characteristics. It's sacrificial and it's other-centered. Now, these are very similar, but they're also different. They're like two sides of the same coin. So first, love is by essence sacrificial. Look at verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, what you see here is that John is highlighting what's about to happen in this scandalous foot washing. And to highlight what happens, he introduces in two, in verse three, these two important concepts of what love is all about. This one here, right, that the devil had already put it in Judas's heart to betray Jesus, is this heads up that what Jesus is about to do is costly. That evil and darkness is closing in on Jesus. Judas is gonna betray him, he's gonna get arrested, he's gonna get put on a cross, and he's gonna be crucified. Evil and darkness are closing in. So as Jesus steps out to wash their feet, symbolic of going to the cross, he knows he's stepping into something that is gonna cost him that's gonna cost sacrifice, namely his life. And what we learn here is that love by nature is sacrificial. That love by nature costs you something. And this is so critical in our culture and day that has very different definition of love. What's the definition of, uh, in general? In our culture of love, it's usually tied to a a good feeling. It's usually tied to a a strong emotion. In fact, I'm on the uh, song lyric hit this morning. You're gonna get a few more song lyrics here. Here's why I'm sharing that. It's because music and lyrics to song capture the culture of the day, don't they? You get a sense of the culture and the world we live in by the lyrics of songs that are produced and sung. And so let me, let me read a few more to you here. I've tried to span the generations, okay? So I'm trying to, some of you that are um, a little more seasoned, hopefully I'll tap in a little bit all the way down to some of the younger of you. I'm gonna build my whole world around you. You're all that matters the temptations. You're my everything. If we believe in each other, there's nothing we can't do. Celine Dion, love can move mountains. You're my religion. You're my church. You're my holy grail at the end of my search. That's sting, sacred love. And then Hosier, take me to church. She tells me, worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent is when I'm alone with you. You see what all these capture is this idea that I love you means I love how you make me feel. I love how you make me happy. 
I love how you make my life more easy and more comfortable. And that couldn't be further from the biblical definition of love. The Bible says that love, agape, love is costly. It's sacrificial. It means that to love someone, it's going to cost you something. That's the first characteristic. The second is very similar, other side of the coin, and that is other-centeredness. So love by essence, by nature, is sacrificial. It's costly. But towards what end? towards this second characteristic, other-centeredness. Look at verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, if you had to fill in the next verse there, or verses, the tendency would say, wow, Jesus has such power and such status that the next thing you might expect is that by some flashy confrontation, he'd defeat the devil. That by a flash of divine wrath, he'd get rid of Judas. And yet that verse three, his power and status, moves into verse four, which is he takes off his outer garment. He ties a towel around his waist, which means this, Jesus Christ, all power and authority, status as God's son, chooses with great intention to look like a slave. That's what's being described there. When he takes his garment off, he puts a towel around his waist. He looked like a first century slave or servant. And then by what he did, see in that day, the roads were dusty. They wore sandals. And it was very common that if you walked into a home, there would be a slave or a servant there with water and a towel, who would wash your feet. And so Jesus, by what he looks like and by what he does, takes the form of a slave. Do you see what he's doing here? He is using his power. He's leveraging his power for the good of others. Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. Peter cuts off the priest, the ear of the high priest. You remember what Jesus says to him after Peter cuts the high priest's ear off? Do you think, Peter, that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? You know what he's saying there? Peter, do you know who I am? I could use my power, Peter, to preserve self, come off this cross but I'm choosing not to. I am choosing to leverage my power and to use my power to serve you. I'm using my power for the benefit of others. Love is costly action for the good of others. Costly action for the good of others. That means that when you love someone, using the biblical definition of love. That means that you work towards their good, you benefit them at cost to yourself. That's the biblical definition of love. Sacrifice that is other-centered. 
And there's an emotion attached with this. You know, I think oftentimes we, we talk about emotions are the caboose. Yes, they are. But there's an emotion attached with love, biblical love. And it's, it's joy and happiness, but it's a joy and happiness wrapped up in the happiness of another. That's what it is. A joy and happiness wrapped up in the joy and happiness of another. So the essence of love is sacrifice and other-centeredness. We've looked at the foundation of love, which reveals the essence of love, and now we move to the expression of love because in verses 12 to 17, Jesus spends those verses describing how his love, ultimately on the cross, but symbolically in this foot washing, is an example to follow. Look at verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The word example there means pattern. In other words, Jesus saying, I have given you a pattern to follow. And there are two prominent features to this pattern that come out in this passage. And the two prominent features of this pattern are radical humility and radical generosity. Radical humility, radical generosity. Let's start with humility. Uh, Luke's gospel that describes this Passover meal Jesus has with his disciples describes something else that happened at it. And that is that the disciples start to argue who's the greatest. They're arguing about who's the greatest. They're jockeying for position. Now, we don't know if it happened before Jesus washed their feet or after. But we do know this that that posture they take of arguing about who's the greatest couldn't be in more stark contrast to Jesus taking on the form of a slave and a servant to wash their feet. Absolutely contrasted with each other. And Jesus responds to their arguing in in Luke's account of it by saying, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. We often think of humility as uh, a self-esteem description that it's either thinking too highly of yourself, you're just thinking too much of yourself, or even thinking too low of yourself. We we treat humility as almost a self-esteem description. That's not what it is. In fact, when when at this meal, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, that's not the issue. The issue is this, that they are processing everything through how it's going to affect them. Everything that's happening is being processed through how is this going to affect me, my position in the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the least. And so what we see is that humility is neither thinking more of yourself nor less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. That's humility. It's thinking about yourself less. And when that, when there is radical humility, which I want you to see the flow here, flows right out of the foundation of love, Jesus' love. When there's radical humility, there are beautiful expressions of love. Radical humility allows you to truly rejoice in someone else's success when he gets the promotion that maybe you wanted, uh, when she gets the award that you were hoping to get. Radical humility allows you to truly rejoice in someone else's success that even moves you to action, 
to lovingly encourage that person. That's radical humility. Radical humility allows you to give credit to someone else and to see your story in light of how others have contributed to it. That's radical humility. When you recognize you're where you're at, not because of you, ultimately by the grace of God, but there have been people throughout your life that have contributed to your story. That's radical humility. Radical humility is commitment to get something done no matter what it takes. Menial labor. That, that's what Jesus did with his disciples when he washed their feet. That was menial labor. I'm a, I'm a huge Miami Heat fan. Yeah, yes, we got another Heat fan in the house. Um, for those of you who don't know, that's an NBA basketball team. I grew up in South Florida. I was there when they came into the league. Now, I've been through it thick and thin. I'm a big Miami Heat fan, which, mean, which means that the last half of last season was an incredible run. Because the Miami Heat, last NBA season, first half of the year went 11 and 30. 11 wins, 30 losses. Second half of the season, 30 and 11. 30 wins, 11 losses. They went on this miraculous run. It was historic. They almost made the playoffs. And towards the, the middle, towards the end of the run, the, the most striking part about their run was that there was not an all-star on the team. There wasn't an all-star on the team in the second half of the season. They're beating all the teams that were filled with all-stars. And so they, they interviewed Eric Spolstra, the head coach. And they said to him, how's this happening? What did you do? I mean, this is like two different teams. What's going on here? What's the formula for the success? And, and, and I will never forget what he said. It's amazing what you can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. It's amazing what you can accomplish when no one cares who gets the credit. That's radical humility. And that's one of the, the features of this pattern that Jesus lays down for us in the foot washing. It's one of radical humility, but it's also a pattern of radical generosity. Later in chapter 13, Jesus gives the so that, this is like the so that conclusion of his foot washing in verses 34 and 35. He says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now you say, what's new about that commandment? Love God, love others, that's Old Testament. What's new about it is just as I have loved you. What's new about it is this pattern that Jesus lays down before them through the foot washing, which is expending self for the good of another. Radically expending self for the good of another, that's generosity. The Roman culture that was surrounding this first century in which Jesus lived was a brutal culture, very indifferent to suffering. In fact, abortion, child sacrifice was rampant and common in the Roman world. In fact, I'll read you a few quotes from, one is from Cicero. He lived in the hundred years before Jesus was born. And he wrote, quoting from the, the uh, 12 tables of Roman law, he wrote this, deformed infants should be killed. 
Seneca, who lived almost simultaneous to Jesus' life, wrote this. We drown children who are at birth weakly and abnormal. That was the Roman culture. Children were abandoned. And what was remarkable is that these early Christians would go in and rescue these abandoned children and take care of them as their own. And it was a, it was a sacrifice because resources were limited at that time. Survival was in doubt. And they would step into danger. They would step into uh, not knowing if they had the resources enough to rescue these abandoned children. It was so striking in the first century that Julian, who was the last uh, pagan emperor of Rome, wrote this about these early Christians. These impious Galileans, that's what he called them. Those were the Christians. These impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape. Agape is the Greek word for love in the New Testament. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity, of love, and by display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them. That's what Jesus means in verse 35 when he says, by this they will all know that you're my disciples, by how you love, how you love one another. We absolutely pull the teeth out of this command. When we reduce this down, no offense, but to Southern hospitality. When we equate love one another to be kind, smile, hold the door, when we reduce it, please, thank you, when we reduce love one another to that, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Sure he is, be kind, yes, 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 yes. What he's talking about here is sacrifice. He's talking about giving your life away. He's talking about pouring your life out, expending yourself at great cost to self. That that's what he's talking about. Love one another as I have loved you. He's saying be radically generous with your time. Be radically generous with your, your giftedness. Be radically generous with your resources all the way to the point that it hurts because that's sacrifice. He says loving one another means at cost to yourself. It costs you to love another. And the beautiful part about this is that Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. When he says, I want you to be radically generous with your resources for building an eternal kingdom, the reality is he's saying, give your money. He gave his life to secure this eternal kingdom. When he says, be radically generous with your time, give your time to invest in this kingdom. He didn't just give his time, he gave his life to secure this kingdom. 
And so Jesus says to give, to give, to give until it hurts because that's what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is giving until it costs you. Now let me tie this all together. The foundation of love, Jesus' love for us, reveals the essence of love, what it is, which produces expressions of love. Foundation of love reveals the essence of love, which produces expressions of love. Don't get it reversed. The expressions of love don't then show you what the essence is that then somehow gets you the foundation. It doesn't work that way. The foundation of Jesus' love reveals the essence which produces the expressions. If the expressions of love, radical humility, radical generosity are lacking in your life, it is not because of a lack of effort. Let me, let me say this again. If, if, if you see the expressions of love, radical humility, radical generosity lacking in your life, it is not because of lack of effort. It's that Jesus' love on the cross by his resurrection is an abstract concept because when Jesus' love is abstract, it leads to abstract expressions of love. When Jesus' love on the cross is gripped by your heart or you, you have your hands around it, it produces expressions of love. I, here's the question. I ended last week with this, but where does the power come from? come from to do this? Right? Where, where does the power come from to be radically humble, radically generous? And Jesus gives it to us in verse 12. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet, took on the form of a slave, did what slaves did, expended himself, symbolizing what he was going to do on the cross. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Do you see what he does? Before he ever asks them to follow his example, right? That's what verses 12 to 17 are, are moving towards. Here's the pattern, now go follow it. Do as I did. Before he ever says that, what does he say to them? Do you understand what I've done to you? Jesus is saying, if you don't understand that, you're not gonna be able to do what I'm asking you to do. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? Has his love gripped your heart? Not just an intellectual understanding, but has the love of Jesus, the sacrificial, other-centered love of Jesus gripped your heart? Is it the truth that controls your life? Jim Elliott was a missionary who was killed in Ecuador years, years ago was killed in Ecuador bringing the gospel to the Aka Indians. Talk about sacrifice. Act of love, bringing the good news to these Aka Indians, and he was killed for it. He lost his life. Listen to what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the amazing love that you proclaim over us. We thank you for this picture of Jesus, Messiah, King, Lord, bowing down, taking the form of a slave and doing what a slave would do to wash his disciples' feet. We thank you for the picture it is of the cross and the cleansing and the forgiveness, Jesus, that you purchased for us by your death on the cross. And Father, we thank you for the picture, the essence that it paints of what love is, that it is costly, that it is other-centered. And Father, you leave us with the question that is meant to motivate and empower our expressions of love, which is, do you understand what I have done for you? And I pray, Father, that every one of us would contemplate that question. Do we understand what you, Jesus, have done for us? And Father, by your Holy Spirit, would our understanding be heartfelt, not just head knowledge, but that we would know your love, Jesus, and that it would propel us into acts of love for one another, selfless acts of love, generous acts of love, born out of humility. Father, as we close in worship, would you help by your spirit our hearts to come alive to what we sing? Your love, Jesus, that changes everything and reorients our life and redirects our life, changes our marriages, changes our families, changes our neighborhoods, changes our city, changes our world. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.